So anyways, if you have your Bibles, open them up to Matthew chapter 8. It's also in the back of your bulletin. Uh, We're going to be a little bit in Leviticus 11 today, a little bit in Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to be a little bit all over the place, but we'll see if we can tie it all in together. Let me just kick off reading the first four verses of Matthew chapter 8. It goes like this. When he had come down from the mountain, so Jesus just finishes his sermon on the mount. When he comes down, large crowds followed him. Right away, a man with leprosy came up, knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Reaching out his hand, Jesus touched him, saying, I am willing, be made clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Then Jesus told him, see that you don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer a gift Uh, the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. So I'm aware that the opening of this may very well uh, land with like 30% of you. So the rest of you 70% that this is not going to be anywhere near the life you live. Just like tone out, tune out, tune back in when it's all over with. But uh, this was just, I couldn't stop thinking about this this week, so it had to come up. I will never forget uh, the most cinematic experience of my life, the best moment in movie theater history for me, December 17th, 2021. It was the release night of Spider-Man No Way Home. Any of you guys go watch Spider-Man No Way Home? Like one of the best movies I've I've ever seen. Now, again, 70% of you, you're not going to care. I understand. But let me explain to you why this movie meant so much to me. You see, Tom Holland, he's the one that plays this particular Spider-Man. He was not the first Spider-Man. In fact, through the different movies, there's been three actors play Spider-Man. Right there on your left in 2002 was a guy named Tobey Maguire. I was 11 years old when that movie came out. I know, I'm hurting people. So I was 11 years old when that movie came out. Uh, And I still have a memory, sixth grade, my mom picked me up from school. You teachers are going to hate this or love it, I'm not sure which. My mom picked me up from school because I had a dentist appointment, and after the dentist appointment, she looked at me and said, what if today, instead of going back to school, we went and watched Spider-Man? And we went to the movies, and I fell in love with Spider-Man as my favorite superhero for the rest of forever. Like, that is my superhero that that I just really enjoy. Tobey Maguire did a trilogy, uh, and then after that, Sony revamped a whole new set of, like, movies called The Amazing Spider-Man, the middle one where Andrew Garfield took it. Sony then uh, gave the rights of Spider-Man to Marvel in the Marvel Cinematic Universe with Disney. Tom Holland began playing Spider-Man. You don't care anything about any of this. All that to say... In 2021, in the newest Spider-Man movie, Marvel decided what they were going to do is they were going to bring all the Spider-Men together. And this was like rumored, but it wasn't confirmed. And so setting in the movie theater, there's the scene where Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man shows up. And the movie theater erupts in applause. And it is like the best moment of movie theater in my life. But I love that scene because in that scene, uh, you know, the characters in Tom Holland's Spider-Man universe doesn't recognize this guy. And so they say, who are you? And he goes, well, I'm Spider-Man. They look really confused. And then they drop the classic line, do you, do you know, prove it. Prove that you're Spider-Man. And the rest of the scene is dedicated to him having to prove he's Spider-Man. So what are the ways that he goes about proving he's Spider-Man? Well, he jumps and he hangs from the ceiling and then he crawls around on the ceiling and flings a web or two, you know, like, I can prove to you I'm Spider-Man by doing the tricks that Spider-Man does. Now, all of that, again, you can tone back in, tune back in if you're not a Spider-Man fan. All of that to say, I've been thinking a lot about that because I think that's kind of how we see Jesus and his miracles. That Jesus like comes on the scene, he gives this proclamation to some extent, like I'm the Messiah, and everyone's like, oh yeah? Prove it. 
And Jesus does like messianic superhero stuff. He's like, oh, you, don't, you down on the Messiah? Watch this water become wine. See, now you have to believe me. Watch, I can walk on water too. Now you have to believe me. And we just kind of like think that that's what the Bible's conveying. Jesus just does some sort of like spiritual magic tricks as the demonstration of his power. But I think that's an absolutely busted way of looking at Jesus's miracles. In fact, I think it does not only a disservice to our reading and understanding of the Bible, it does a disservice to us as we teach about and read about who Jesus is because the Bible is doing something far, far deeper when it comes to Jesus and the miracles that he's performing. They are the infiltration point. They're not the the magic trick. It's the infiltration point of where the kingdom of heaven overlays with the kingdom of earth and something drastic takes place. Uh, Tim Keller, if you've read, he recently passed away, wonderful pastor and author. He wrote a lot about this, uh, really great takes on what miracles are. But here's his quote, and I think it just really sets the tone for how we read through Jesus' miracles. He said this, We modern people think of miracles as the suspension of the natural order, but Jesus meant them to be the restoration of the natural order. So let me just pause right there. Our tendency is to think that when Jesus does a miracle, he suspends the laws of physics or the laws of nature in order to do something unique uh, to prove his messianic powers, so to speak. But Keller would argue, and I, I would argue with him, that that's not actually the right way to look at it. But instead, what we have to do is go all the way back to Genesis 1 and ask, how does God create the world? And actually, in the most natural sense of creation, the world is made to be perfect. That sin is then a corruption of that perfection, and it is corrupting the natural means by which God created. So all the results of sin, death, destruction, disease, those things are actually not natural. They are unnatural, compared to unnatural would be the word, compared to what God has in store. So when Jesus comes onto the scene, what he's doing is not supernatural magic tricks. He's actually giving glimpses of what the coming world looks like when he infiltrates and takes over. So he goes on to say, the Bible tells us God did not originally make the world to have disease or hunger or death in it. Jesus has come to redeem where it is wrong and heal the world where it is broken. His miracles are not just proofs that he has power, but also wonderful foretastes of what what he's going to do with that power. Jesus' miracles are not just a challenge to our minds, but a promise to our hearts that the world we all want is coming. That this world that we can envision but we can't achieve, a world without disease, that we fight so hard and yet we still fail. A world without sin and brokenness that we try to set up rules and laws to prevent and it doesn't actually happen. That Jesus is actually the one solution for that. And here's my point into saying all this. Over the next few weeks, we're going to really be zooming in to some microscopic stories of Jesus' miracles that Matthew records. But, but rather than looking at these as some form of just spiritual magic trick that Jesus does for people's amusement, we need to understand this, that Jesus is actually communicating something. He's communicating in action what God is like and what God's kingdom is like, meaning that each of these stories are not just sporadic events arbitrarily chosen for your entertainment purposes. They are intentionally selected stories to communicate something about Jesus, what he came to do, and what he reveals about the character of God. Because all the last three chapters, Matthew's been telling us about who Jesus is through Jesus' teaching, but now he's going to say Jesus didn't just teach these things, he did these things. 
And he's going to show us who Jesus was in action and experience. So, as we look at these stories over the next few weeks, here's what I want to get at. What is Jesus revealing about God and God's character and what God is like? And then we'll ask the question, what does that intentionally, or what does that mean as we try to live intentionally like Jesus? If you've not been here this year, we took a break over the summer, but from the beginning of the year and now through the rest of the year, we're really going to be looking at what does it mean to live intentionally like Jesus? Uh, Kind of the hypothesis of that is that no one wakes up in the morning and just accidentally acts like Jesus. The sin nature in us is far too strong. Rather, it's it's this practice of repenting and coming back to Jesus and really trying to ask the question, who is Jesus and how do we act like him? So what does this story have to do with us intentionally acting like Jesus? And even more importantly with this story, why does Matthew include it first? Let's go. Verse 2. Right away, as soon as Jesus comes off this mountain, according to Matthew, a man with leprosy came up to him, knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, make me clean. I think even that statement right there is a really interesting statement because this man is already convinced of Jesus' ability. I think for many of us today, we actually have this reversed because we, we, don't, really adapt, we don't really doubt Jesus' willingness or, or compassion. We doubt his ability. So it'll go something along the lines of, Jesus, if you are able, make me clean. But that's not how this man sees the world. Instead, he says, I know Jesus is able, but I'm not sure if Jesus is willing. I know he's powerful, but I don't know if he's compassionate. Jesus, I know you're able, but I don't know if you'd ever offer something like that to a guy like me. Which culturally probably stands true, because for a guy like this who's suffered from a long-term skin condition, likeliness is that he had maybe attempted to see physicians and priests and doctors and uh, tried to get them to offer him some healing, but given his condition, condition, they probably weren't even willing to go close to him. Hey, buddy, we'll pray for you, but we're not touching you. We're not going near that. So he responds in that same mindset to these people, to, to Jesus, and he says, I know you're able but I'm not sure if you're willing. If you're willing, would you cleanse me? And how does Jesus respond? Verse three, reaching out his hand, and you can just see the slow motion, zoom in moment right here where Matthew stops it and says, make sure you recognize that Jesus stops what he's doing as he's walking, and he actually reaches towards this man, and he touches him. Why, why spotlight that act? I mean, in the very next story with the centurion's faith, Jesus doesn't even have to be in proximity to someone to heal them. Why does Jesus have to go down and touch this man? What's notable about that? And if you've been in church and you've heard this story, then you know that there's a cultural taboo about touching someone with a skin disease. I mean, it's like hugging someone that's not showered in three weeks. Like, yeah, I mean, you could be compassionate and say, hey, here's some soap, but I'm not going to give them a hug, Right? Jesus violates the cultural taboo by saying, not only am I willing, but I'll actually reach down and touch you. Again, vision, the guy is kneeling before Jesus, Jesus standing over him. It's this reach down moment to touch this skin diseased man. And we can stop right there, and we can think surface level illustration, surface level, what does this mean? What does Matthew 8, 1 through 4 tell us about Jesus? And it tells us very clearly, not only is Jesus powerful, but he's compassionate. Compassionate beyond cultural norms and standards, meaning that we could just take all of this and say, well, if Jesus is compassionate and we're supposed to be like Jesus, well then, intentionally living like Jesus demands compassion. And that's a right, and that's a true reading of this text, but I don't think it all gets at what it's saying. 
Because that doesn't really answer the question, why does Matthew put this story first? And to answer that question, we have to dig a bit more. Because Matthew's left some intentional clues to carry us all the way back to the Old Testament. There's a door here to be opened. And I think if we can open that door, it magnifies that surface level understanding in some incredible ways. So it starts with verse 2. When the man looks at Jesus and he says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now that, that phrase, make me clean, in English is one word in Greek. It's, it's the Greek word uh, katharasai. Katharasai, that sounds right to me. Yeah, it's that Greek word. Um, now, there's a perfectly good Greek word for healing. In fact, Matthew uses it if you just fast forward one chapter to chapter 9, verse 35. Uh, he's going to say, Jesus continued going around to the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogue, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease. Healing, it's the word therap um, therapeuton. It's where we get our word therapy from. This is Jesus healing people. This man could have said, Jesus, therapeuton. Jesus, heal me. But he doesn't. He says, Jesus, cleanse me. Why? There's, there's the door. Do you, do you see what I'm getting at? There's something that Matthew's inviting you in deeper to this text, and he's saying, hey, if you'll open up this door, it's going to bring this text to life all the more. So why the story or the word clean? Why that phrase? But to do that, we have to go back to the Old Testament. So let me just rapid fire through the Old Testament to get us up to the point that this matters. God creates everything, light and dark, sky and sea, land, plants, moon, stars, fish, birds, animals, humans. He makes it all good or bad. You can interact. It's okay. Good, right? The Bible says so. That God creates something, he looks at it, and he says, it is good. In fact, on the sixth day, after he makes humanity, he looks and he says, this is very good. It's the epitome of perfection. It's exactly how God wants to create the world. And to the one unique creation, humankind, made in God's image, he then installs into them the autonomy of choice. That God actually gives them the choice to trust him and flourish in the garden or to define good and evil for themselves by eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And we know the story, they eat of the tree, they define good and evil in their own terms, and this creates this cascading effect of brokenness and sin that shatters out now to you and me and everyone we know and love. But is that the end of the story? Obviously not, we wouldn't be here. If, well, you, know, you might be here, but just totally even more broken. No, God does not leave humanity there. He doesn't leave Adam and Eve there. Instead, he pursues after them. And the story's going to go on and on to the point that God calls out a particular family. And this family, they're going to be a blessing to the world. They're going to be the people that are to set the worlds to right. They end up falling enslaved to Egypt, but God raises up a man named Moses who leads them out of slavery through the Red Sea, through the wilderness, till they come to the base of this mountain. And there at the base of this mountain, God enters a covenantal relationship with them where they are going to become his people and he is going to covenantally become their God. And right in the middle of these people, there's going to be this personal presence that's planted and it's going to be this special tent they call the tabernacle. This is to be God's unique place for everyone to see and experience his presence in the world. But that is going to carry with it this more intensive set of rules because at the very end of giving Moses this long list of rules, here's what he says. I'll have it on the screen, Leviticus chapter 11. It says this, verse 44, I am the Lord your God. 
Consecrate yourselves and be holy, because I am holy. Do not make yourselves unclean. Do not defile yourselves by any creature that moves along the ground. I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy, because I am holy. So as God prepares to live among Israel, what's the key word that the Bible uses to describe his presence in Israel's encampment? Do you see it, what it's repeated over and over again? It's the word holy. It's repeated over and over that God's presence in Israel is a holy presence. Now, now, what on earth does that word holy mean? Because we've come to use this word in a purely religious context, and it was a religious context word for the Israelites as well, uh, absolutely. But it's one of those words we really never try to get at what it means outside of a religious context. And so in some ways what's happened is we've just taken this term holy and, and we've wrapped it all the way around to just mean some sort of like morality, that, that it just means a really extra moral person. That, that's a holy man over there. That's a holy place. It's just like it's a good place. And that's okay, but the issue is it doesn't really get at the heart of Old Testament holiness. Because while morality is a piece of the puzzle, it's not a main part of the puzzle, or it's not the entirety of it. The word holiness communicates something more. So, again, we're playing Greek, Hebrew stuff. Let's do it a little bit more. Hebrew, the word for holiest is the word kadosh. Can you say kadosh? It's a good word, right? It's a fun, fun one to say, kadosh. Um, Kadosh in the Old Testament, uh, just looking at this text, right, just right here in Leviticus 11, if you could try to just through this decipher what is the opposite of Kadosh, what's the opposite of Kadosh? Well, do not make yourselves unclean. See, sometimes we want to say that the opposite of holiness, the opposite of Kadosh is sin, that, that you are sinful, and that's the opposite of holiness. And again, there's something there. But in this text, the opposite of holy is actually unclean. See, kadosh is not just a morality word. It's a word that's used to describe something that's so unique, so one of a kind, so different, that it is set apart from everything else. Here, here's the best illustration I've heard. And by the way, I did just steal this. So um, credit due to other people that's way smarter than me. How many of you have ever been to a hospital? Quite a few of you. How many of you have ever been in an operating room? There's probably less of you that have been in an operating room than those of you that have been in a hospital. Why? Because an operating room is holy. Not in the religious sense, but it's holy in the sense that they don't let just anyone that wants to waltz on in. In fact, uh, hospitals have become more and more in this kind of stance of you can, like, anyone can walk through the front door. Like, anyone's available to do that, but there's particular parts that you have to have access to. So when Haley and I had our son this summer, uh, if you wanted to get back to that kind of area, you had to pick up this red phone, and I'd say, hey, I'm here to see Griffin. And they're like, yeah, what's your relationship to him? And they would like quiz you on it. I'm his dad. Uh, and what's the mom's name? Haley Smith. Okay, you can come in. Right? They're putting barricades because they want to protect things. And that's particularly true in an operating room because not anyone can just waltz on into an operating room. In fact, what are the requirements to get into an operating room? Well, first, you've got to have years of school if you're going to be the one operating or at least helping the surgeon. But even outside of that, you're usually going to have to take off your outside dirty clothes and put on clean, sanitized clothes. You have to wear gloves and a face mask. You have to wash your hands in a particular way. There are these rituals set up because anything out there poses a threat to what's trying to happen in the operating room. 
one runny nose, one mud-stained shoe, all of that can be the sand that destroys the machine of the operating room. So we keep it out. We make it a holy place. I think that to some extent helps us understand what this Levitical understanding of God's kadosh is in relationship to humanity's uncleanliness. Because in the tabernacle understanding, God, his holiness really needs to be protected from all the various things out there that would render people unclean. Things like touching a dead body or having a skin disease. In the Hebrew mind, those things stand in opposition to God's holiness, much like a dirty tissue stands in opposition to an operating room. It stands against everything the operating room stands for. So you just don't allow sick people into the operating room, and you just don't allow unclean people into the proximity of God's holiness. Now again, understand, that doesn't necessarily mean sinful. It's not sinful for you to have to go bury great Aunt Gertrude. That's okay. You're not sinful for that. But you are unclean. And that needs to be dealt with before you come back into the presence of God. And this poses a permanent problem for someone that that could never go through that cleansing process because they had a permanent and perpetual skin disease. And yet this is still the standard operating system. It's the procedure for the temple and the tabernacle. So the question that lingers for thousands of years is, well, what hope is there for people that have that type of skin disease? One more text I want to look at, and we'll wrap up. Isaiah chapter 6. Some 500 years later or so, after this, we find this story in Isaiah. And Isaiah is a prophet that lives somewhat within the proximity of the temple, so the tabernacle at this point has been updated to the more permanent temple. Uh, But Isaiah gets this vision where he actually finds himself not just in the proximity of temple, of the temple, but actually in the Holy of Holies himself. And he begins to write about what this vision looks like for him. He says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on high, on a high and lofty throne, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. And seraphim were standing above him, and they each had six wings. With two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, with two they flew, and they called to each other. Holy, 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 kadosh, kadosh, kadosh is the Lord God of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. Why is God holy? Is it just that he is morally perfect and good and pure? Well, that's part of it, but that's not the entire picture. No, they say it's not holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of armies because he's holy and perfect and pure. It's holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of armies because his glory fills fills the earth. No, God is holy because he is so unique and so set apart that he is the one life giver in a world that is broken by death. He is the one uncaused cause in a world that is a cascading event of cause. This is who God is. It's that he is the unique creator of the universe, filling his creation with his glory. So how is Isaiah going to respond to this? I mean, does he, like, see this vision? He's like, dude, this is so cool. I can't wait to go home and tell my friends about it. Like, I got to write this down. This is the coolest thing I've ever experienced. No, look look at his response in verse 4. The foundations of the doorways shook at the sound of their voice. The temple was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me. I am ruined. Isaiah's response as he sees the kavod of God, or that's the glory, as he sees the kadosh of God, is that he recognizes his own brokenness. His life flashes before his eyes. And what makes him feel that way? 
because I am a man of unclean lips. There's that word again, posed in direct opposition to God's holiness. I live among a people of unclean lips because of my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. Isaiah recognizes that he is unclean. And when he sees God's holiness and that confronts his uncleanliness in comparison, that's not supposed to happen. And the closer you got to the Holy of Holies, the more rituals you had to go through. And if you didn't, do you know what happens? You die. That's the Old Testament pattern. So Isaiah encounters this and he goes, woe is me, I'm ruined. This is it. I am done for. This is the end of my life. He's terrified. And then look at what happens next. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, and, his hand was a, uh, and in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongues. Now, a lot of times I think we read this, and we just kind of get this biblical visionary language, and we're like, eh, weird stuff. I don't know. Seraphim, flying angels thing. Don't think like baby. In fact, the word seraph uh, elsewhere in the Old Testament is always in reference to snakes, seraph nahar. Um, so flying snake, maybe? It's an unearthly being is what you should understand. Whatever this creature is, six wings, feet, hands, it picks up a tongue from the the table with incense burning on it, it picks up one of the coals, and it flies towards him. Just put that into perspective. How do you feel? Let's just say you go to a barbecue and someone grabs, uh, you know, a hot coal and like, hey, let me put this in your mouth. No, I actually won't participate in that today, thank you very much. It's got to be terrifying, right? This seraphim flies towards Isaiah, hot coal in mind, and he goes to touch Isaiah's lips with it. But look at what happens in verse 7. He touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed and your sin is atoned for. What is so significant about all this? What does this have to do? And I think if we can examine it through expectation versus experience, it makes a lot of sense. What's the expectation? Isaiah's operating under a Levitical view of God where his uncleanliness is supposedly a threatening part of, or threatening to God's holiness. So the only solution to that is that Isaiah would die. That's the expectation. That's why Isaiah is so fearful. But what is his experience? His experience is actually the exact opposite. It's actually not that Isaiah's uncleanliness is the contaminating agent threatening God's holiness. No, it's actually God's holiness. It's his kadosh that's able to break through into Isaiah's life and do what? Cleanse him. To clean him and set him free from his iniquity. God's then going to say, now Isaiah, with what I've done, you're to be my mouthpiece and go share this message with Israel. And we can trace that through as Isaiah becomes the spokesperson for God, beginning to talk about this very reality where God's holiness is actually not something to be threatened, but it's something that breaks out of the temple into the lives of unclean humans. As he says things like, hey, there's going to come a Messiah. And this Messiah, he's going to bear our sickness and carry our pain. In fact, he's going to be crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that's going to bring us peace, it's going to go on him. By his wounds, we're going to be healed. The Messiah taking on the brokenness of man in order to set man free, to heal him, to make him clean. This is the unthinkable thing Matthew is opening the door for you to see in Matthew chapter 8. Are you picking up what he's doing here? So back to our starting question, and we'll wrap up. What does Matthew 8 tell us about what God is like, and why does Matthew mention this story first? 
We have to understand that this is not Jesus doing Spider-Man web flings to prove that he's a superhero. I am the Messiah. Watch me do a magic trick. No, no, no. This is far deeper. This is a man who has been cut off from the temple, cut off from his family, all from the uh, perpetual state of being unclean. Because if anyone touches him, they too become unclean. So what's supposed to happen when Jesus bends down and touches this man? Well, that man's uncleanliness is supposed to defile Jesus. That's the contagious element. But what actually happens? It's just like Isaiah's temple vision. It's actually Jesus' holiness that transfers to this man, both healing him, but in the more unthinkable reality, making him clean. So Matthew wants you to know right from the start that this Jesus, he's not just an amazing teacher teaching the way of a new kingdom. He's not a really smart, authoritative figure. He is actually both able and willing to pursue people's uncleanliness and brokenness and corruption with no threat posed to him and to then infiltrate into that and take the holiness of God, bringing it to unholy people. Let's look at verse four, back to Matthew chapter eight. Jesus sends this man off. He says, hey, don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. At a direct challenge to, to challenge the priestly worldview that the contagion is not actually uncleanliness, but the contagion is actually God's holiness. He sends this man to the temple and says, hey, show them. Show them that they actually don't have to be in the business of protecting God from men, but we can actually take God to mankind. That the holiness of God can infiltrate this world and radically change it. In fact, that's exactly what God wants to do. Because what they're going to find is that the very person claiming to be God can cleanse people. Not through some ritual, not through weeks of waiting, but through the simple, compassionate act of a touch. So what does this mean for us? Two things. Two things for you. Number one, Jesus is not intimidated by your sin or your brokenness. Jesus is not intimidated by your sin or your brokenness. So often, sin has this ability to get inside of us and make us feel like we've blown it, and if we want God to like us again, then we're gonna have to really work extra hard to climb back up that mountain that we tumbled off of, and sometimes that's just an exhausting thing to think about, so instead we kind of slack off, and we think, ah, I'm just gonna avoid people that make me think about that, and I'm gonna avoid church, and I'm gonna avoid prayer. But that's not the story Jesus tells you. The gospel story is that Jesus is not threatened by your sin, but he's on a mission of contagious holiness to infect the world through his power and his compassion. Now, that's not a license to do whatever it is you want, and there still might very well be consequences of the sins in your life, but it's to say even that cannot threaten Jesus' ability to infiltrate and break into every corner of your life and begin turning things back over to him. This is who Jesus is. So maybe today you need to respond to that. Maybe you've all your life seen yourself as a threat to Jesus and uh, I can never go to church. I, God can never love someone like me. I'm far too unclean. I'm far too unholy. He wouldn't want me to begin with. Stop talking to me about it, Pastor. And I would just say the Bible tells you Jesus wants you. The only thing that you would need to do is just kneel down before him and say, I know you're willing. I know you're able. Heal me. 
and he will. It's faith and submission. And you can do that right here this morning. If you've never done it before, come talk to me. I would love to explain to you what it's like and how you submit yourself to God in faith and let him cleanse you. But maybe you've already done that, and that leads me to my second point, and it's this. If this is who Jesus is, then we should also not be intimidated by the sins of the culture around us. If Jesus is not intimidated by my sin, then I don't have to be intimidated by anyone else's sin. So often we as the church, we want to get up in arms and sound the fire alarm because the culture around us is so sinful, it's coming after us, it's going to ruin everything. And yeah, there's a level of protection that we can work on to provide security for particularly younger believers that are still maturing in faith. Absolutely. But does Jesus see those people as a threat? No. He doesn't see them as scary as, uh, at all. In fact, he sees them as someone who needs him. He sees them as someone to pursue and love and demonstrate his power to. You see, the church has stood through far more threatening situations for the last 2,000 years, and it will continue to stand. That's Jesus' promise. Peter, on you I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prosper against it. So rather than seeing those around us, those unclean people as a threat to our well-being and to God's holiness that we need to protect places like this from people like that. What if we actually started to see them as Jesus sees them? What if we actually intentionally lived like Jesus in this demand of compassion? What if First Baptist actually saw Portalis that way? Might it change who we are? Might it change the inner DNA of our church? Might it actually make a difference in this world so that unclean people who feel like they have no place to belong can actually find a savior whose holiness is contagious to them? But that involves us going and telling them about it. So how do you do that this week? Maybe you need to respond. You can come forward. I'm going to have a time of prayer as we reflect. But this is a time to think about what does it mean to worship a God who is holy, not in some way that we have to get, our cleans, clean, get ourselves cleaned up, but that he has already offered to clean us because he loves us that much that it's his holiness that's infectious, not our sin. Father God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for bringing us here. I pray that you would not let your word come unvoid. Help us to see that you have infiltrated this world with your holiness. Help us to see that you are bigger and stronger than all of these things we face. And that even when there's threats to the world around us, there seems like there's threats to the church right here, that we wouldn't be intimidated by any of that, but we would have the same heart of compassion that you have. And God, if there's anyone in here that's never given their life to you, they've never knelt in submission and said, Jesus, cleanse me, that you would give them the heart this morning that they might repent and be cleansed by your holiness. God, we'd love to see that happen. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'll be up here if you want to pray. I'd love to pray with you. If not, it's a